people are genuinely concerned about potential harm associated with use of their own data against them. As we've been developing our AI assurance framework and contemplating actual uses of facial recognition, what we have been doing is considering a whole range of mitigating strategies to deal with those not necessarily well-considered harms because the harms that people have considered are those obvious ones, the ones right in front of you. But thinking about secondary harms, thinking about harms associated with repeated application of technologies and ensuring that any AI solution deployed in New South Wales will pilot first and then be reviewed with some real rigor before any scaling happens. And that has been very well received by people who are really concerned about making things potentially worse because they're applying AI to a system. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast, where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age, what it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Dr. Ian Offerman, welcome to The Foil. It's really exciting to have you on here. As you know, I always call you the Bono of data science, and that's because you really have led so many incredible initiatives, not only in New South Wales, but in Australia and around the world. To start us off, could you share with us how you became a data scientist? Thanks, Christy. And it's a, it's a wonderful way to start an interview. I have to say a little bit by accident. So I did a PhD in telecommunications and mobile communications and ultimately wound up working on 3G mobile with Nokia in Finland. And I had responsibility for planning optimization tools for mobile networks. And in 2G, in GSM, if you had signal, then you had capacity. If you had coverage, you had capacity. They were almost the same thing. So we planned the networks based on physics by predicting where radio waves would propagate and then just drawing the colored maps around the different cellular networks to say, this is how we plan a network. To optimize a network, we then think about all the different interactions between those different cells and again, use equations to optimize networks. 3G came along and it was a very, very different beast. It had a new technology, it had new data rates, and it had very, very different ways of connecting. So you could have a voice call, which was a few kilobits per second, or you could have an amazing two megabits per second to your phone. But a two megabit per second user was very, very different in terms of their impact on the network to a GSM user. So we started out exactly the same way planning networks, but we realized that very quickly, the physics we had, the equations we had, were just not good enough for the real world with all of these complex interactions with different network types, different user types, different geographies, different terrains. And ultimately, what we realized is the best way to optimize a network like that was to get it deployed and let it operate and then pull all the data in and then look through the data to see what was actually happening and then optimize the network based on analysis of the data. And that was a real eye-opener. And then as networks became more and more complicated, there's still a role for the equations in the physics, but ultimately, Networks are so complex that really the only way to optimize them is to, <clears throat> excuse me, is to let them run for a little and then use the data to optimize. Now, from Nokia, I moved back to Australia to work for CSIRO and I had responsibility at, at CSIRO for the radio team who did this amazing work with more wireless technology. And we looked at how the NBN might be deployed, at least in the fixed wireless part. We also, I also had responsibility for the field robotics team who were developing spinning laser technology to sense the world around them or autonomous devices and 
build real world models of the, of the of the world around them in data. And it was a really interesting perspective because what the autonomous device could do was sense the world around it and then plan how it would move forward, work around obstacles, and do for even what if scenario planning, what if I got stuck into this point. And it, again, it was what amazed me was that you could essentially virtualize, digitize anything, any process, any system, any real world environment, bring it into the, the digital world, and then you could start to do some really amazing things. Situational awareness, what's going on around me, a predictive capability, and what happens if I do this, or that, that what if scenario planning. And so when I finally got to New South Wales government, and originally I, I just offered to help out establish with the data analytics center, I realized that the goal of the data analytics center was to use sophisticated analytical techniques operating on a range of different data sets to try and address some wicked policy challenges, problems that are complex, subtle, and ultimately have people's behavior at their heart. And I thought if the ideas that we're working on at the data analytics center are even half as wild as what we were doing at CSIRO, then they had a really good chance of working. So during the course of running the data analytics center, by that stage, I had become a data scientist. I'd moved from being a telco person to becoming a data scientist. The ability to use, in some cases, hundreds of data sets with really sophisticated analytical techniques really opened people's eyes to the art of the possible. You could access a wide variety of data sets, which in some cases had quite weak linkages to the problem at hand, but they demonstrated a different way of seeing the problem, demonstrated a different way of, of understanding what the problem was really at the heart of, of the issue that was being looked at, and ultimately provide the ability to ask really powerful questions that people have not been able to ask before and to know things people have not been able to know before to get greater insights into those challenges. So along the way, I became a data scientist. That's amazing. What a great, what a great transition from, uh, from an analysis of complex systems, the discovery that data is a, a better way or using data is a better way to optimize complex systems than, than physics or, you know, for the time being anyway, presumably until the models get more sophisticated and then into data science. And so really exciting work to, that you've alluded to there with the, in the data analytics center. And I think we'll, we'll get more into that. And you've already spoken a little bit about this, but I'm keen to sort of hear your thoughts at a, you know, at a summary level, if you like, perhaps about, you know, what data science is really. When you say that we're using sophisticated techniques to apply to real world wicked and tricky problems involving people's behaviors and, and attitudes and, and all this kinds of thing, you know, what is data science and how, how do you apply data science in that sense? For me, a, a, an engineer is someone who builds a solution to a known problem. And if you have a problem and you give it to a group of engineers, they'll decompose it. <clears throat> Excuse me. They'll decompose it. They will each then go and work on their little part and bring back and, and build it all together and you've got a solution. If you offer a problem to a scientist, they will quite often come back and say, I think you're asking the wrong question. I think you need to think about this problem differently. So a scientist allows you to go into poorly defined, uh, poorly structured areas of greater unknown. And if you add data to either engineer or scientist, it it's really speaks to the set of tools that, or the, the insights or the way into the problem that might be used. So <clears throat> a data engineer will, will build things based on known entities and, and known aspects of data. A data scientist will really step into that unknown, step into that void 
and try to explore through hypothesis testing or try to explore through, through different ways of iterative uncertainty reduction or iterative confidence building ways into that space. So the point about the data analytics center having a chief data scientist where we were looking at problems that no one has ever been able to solve. Those wicked problems also have a tenacity or persistence to them. They are decadal problems. We talk about domestic and family violence, children at risk of significant harm, a whole range of, of different sort of factors. These are problems that no one has ever solved. People have tried various different perspectives. They've pulled different levers. They've tried different interventions, tried different services, but they persist. So the data scientist aspect to it was to try and bring a different framework, different perspective to those wicked challenges. And what, what were some of the techniques that you wound up thinking about applying through that, through that work? We, that's, that's a great question. There are a number of, broadly speaking, a number of different sort of techniques that, that you can apply. Um, sometimes you do the needle in the haystack, lasso correlation, everything correlate with everything else, looking for insights. And some of the fun projects we looked at were, were like that. We looked at transport optimization. The question was, uh, why don't people take public transport during off-peak? And that was an, a really fun project because everybody has a view. And in fact, we developed a method during that, that project of requiring people to put forward an hypothesis as opposed to saying it's because, because immediately people will say it's because. And if you said it's because, we had a swear jar, a dollar goes in the swear jar. <laughs> At the end of the project, we had so much money because everyone <laughs> it jumps to the conclusion it's because. So being able to exercise the discipline of, of saying we will look through this needle, there's this haystack looking for needles, and then we'll start to construct models out of those needles. That analogy is not working so well. But then from that, we'll start to build some predictive or what-if tools. It was a really, really fun exercise, and it really opened people's eyes up. Now, believe it or not, some areas which are really sensitive, people really don't like or are uncomfortable with the idea of just doing what might be called a fishing expedition, just go in there and start looking and, and finding insights. And those areas, particularly related to human services, people get really sensitive about that. And because there's a well-established tradition in, in research for health or social research that you really need to have a strong hypothesis and then go in and look for evidence for or against. So the other sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, the other sort of activity we, we spent a lot of time looking at was building very rich, very intricate data sets and then doing that hypothesis testing. And along the way, we, we've used a variety of different analytical techniques. We've used all of the standard machine learning approaches. We've used some convolutional neural networks. We've used some increasingly sophisticated algorithmic approaches. But in each case, again, there's a sensitivity about the methodology which is being used, how much human judgment is being applied to those methods in, in order to address the sensitivities and, and the sensibilities associated with those projects. So it was, was a really interesting learning exercise. You cannot apply one approach to all sorts of problems. Can you share with us, though, what are the questions that you were trying to answer and what were the questions behind the question? Yeah, uh, thanks, Christy. That's another great question. So when I joined the Data Analytics Center, it was, it was really skeletal resources. We actually had no staff, no data, uh, no compute, no data scientists. We had nine problems endorsed by New South Wales cabinet. And that was a pretty interesting perspective on, on how to start a data analytics setup. But those nine, nine problems had come from talking to different parts of government and just asking people what they really get about it, what problem that they thought data, data science or data analysis might actually 
be able to provide some insight for. And we found every single one of those problems were actually not very well considered from the perspective of really what the problem statement was. And with many new initiatives, of course, there's enthusiasm. People want to get involved. They want to do the right thing. They want to participate. But my first project was with Fire and Rescue. And I walked into the commissioner's office and said, uh, congratulations, commissioner, you've got a project with the DAC. And he said, who are you? What's the DAC? And how did I get a project with you? <laughs> I, I then explained what the project was. And he was not happy. He was really not happy. He said, I will not do that project. I will not engage with you in this project. But because this was the, the first voyage of the DAC, the first project we were stepping into, we both realized we had to do something because, of course, these were cabinet-endorsed projects. So we, we agreed we would only do something which made which he really cared about. And so we went through a process of really gently, respectfully pushing to find out what he really cared about. And what he really cared about, of course, was the future of fire and rescue and the safety of his staff. So we, we talked about some of the existential challenges of fire and rescue. Would power design fire and rescue in a, in a, for a modern world if you had free hands? And of course, that's a really, really big undertaking. But that's the sort of level that, that people do care about. And part of that, how would you design fire and rescue, is how do you keep staff safe? And so in this case, the project we ultimately worked on related to automatic fire alarms. And in the year prior to that project being initiated, there were 48,000 automatic fire alarms that went off in New South Wales. And by law, fire and rescue must respond. By traditionally or conventionally, they'll send two trucks from two different fire stations. And so that's 96,000 truck rolls with lights and sirens, and often in, in dense urban environments. And 97% of those automatic fire alarms are what's called unwanted alarms. So it's not it's not a real fire, it's not a malfunction, it's someone burning toast. And fire and rescue know that. And so if they are arriving at uh, a site of an alarm and they don't see smoke or, or smell smoke and, and see fire, then it's possible that they don't necessarily fully prepare for that response. Now that's no, not to cast aspersions on fire and rescue. It's, it's just the reality of your alertness might not be so high because most of the time, the vast majority of the time, it's someone burning toast. So we just we, we said, let's see if we can build a predictor that helps tell the crew before they arrive, which is typically about seven minutes, if it's a false alarm or an unwanted alarm or a real fire. And so we started really digging into the question. And then, of course, we got some really exotic data sets. We, of course, had panel information. We also knew where the building was. There was an alarm going off. We knew the building type, or the, the use of the building. We knew the time of day. We knew the day of week, the week of month, month of year. Uh, so we could look at some seasonality factors. We looked at air quality, lightning strike, lunar cycles, and social media, and built predictors over time. And this was an example of a needle in a haystack sort of approach. And we followed an approach where we, we ran a series of hackathons with lots of little teams competing with each other. And then the next week, a smaller uh, number of teams, but each losing teams joined winning teams and so on and just ultimately compressed down until we had one team and everybody working on the same solution. And we built a predictor, which was actually pretty good. And we discovered also that every single data set was useful for that predictor <coughs> except one. So it turned out that social media had no impact on the predictability of an automatic fire alarm because people take their photos after the fire crew have arrived typically. And every other data set was part of the predictive capability, which of course included cycles of the moon. So 
that, that is a very long answer. But the point is that with the, the ability to look more broadly, to look differently, to look deeper into a problem, we actually went through a process of convincing people it's actually good to ask really ambitious questions and then come back to something which is for a proof of concept, something that would inform that, that bigger question. The ability to ask a, a powerful question, which ultimately rolls up into a more powerful question, which ultimately rolls up into even more powerful questions. And so over the course of time, we reshaped the problem space that we were working in. And by the, by the time I'd finished running the data analytics center at the end of 2019, I stepped aside from running it. We, we had completed about 50 projects. The exact number is now lost in the mists of time. But each and every project started with that what do you really want to know? If you had access to any data set you could possibly imagine, what are the questions that would help inform your service delivery, the way you understand the problem, the way you think about all the different in interactions and, and complexities of that problem? And so getting to the question, getting to the problem statement became really almost, almost the most important thing that we could do. The second thing was to show that we could help people see their way into that problem. And in many cases, that, that was enough to get people running on their own journey because now they, they had a much clearer understanding of what they wanted to do. They could decompose it into different manageable components. They could stretch their own data toolkit in terms of resources and data sets, and they could, they could find their own way. There's so much more that I want to know about that project. I'm going to really try hard to resist the urge to leap right into the technicalities of it because it sounds like a fascinating use case. But instead, what I'm going to do is back off and focus on this, the concept that you just touched on at the end there, getting to the problem statement, which seems like, it seems like such a simple kind of almost a no brainer thing, but I find that it's actually, you know, I'm sure this is kind of what you were saying already anyway, that that's kind of the hardest part. Once you get the problem statement or the question properly framed, the answer is almost sort of mechanically arrived at after that. You can design the process to get to that answer. And there are all kinds of mathematical and statistical techniques. We had in a previous podcast episode of The Foil, Professor Alan Duffy, who you know gave us a bit of insight into the notion of asking good questions and how that's really important. From your point of view, how do you think about getting people to do, be better at, at, at forming that problem statement and asking the right question? It seems that that has actually to do with that there's a lot in that about literacy, like data literacy. We want to talk about data literacy, I think, a little bit later on. But that data literacy actually involves asking the right question as well. What are your thoughts on that? It's actually, <clears throat> excuse me, it's actually quite difficult to get people to ask those powerful questions. So what we did very early on was just to be annoying and so we would, we would get the, the problem owners into a room and we would ask them that, that question. What's the most powerful question you could ask if you had access to any data set you could possibly imagine? Put all inhibitions aside, any data set you could possibly imagine. What's the most powerful question you could ask that would help you understand the problem, understand how your service is impacting that problem statement, or think about the problem differently? And very, very often, we would sit in the room and you know we we do the post-it notes we do all the things that that say innovation 
But ultimately, there's one magic moment where we would just push people and push people and push people. And someone would say, you know what, damn it, if only I could do this. And you said, great. Now, can you, can you reframe that as a question? And they'd have a go. And then there would be this moment of enlightenment. And then we say, all right, let's see if we can push this a little bit more. Now, we had great support from the minister. Everyone knew cabinet was watching what we were doing. So everybody had to play along with us. But eventually, which is why people allowed us to, to be that, that annoying little burr or that little grain of sand. But eventually people, most of the people we dealt with really came to enjoy this process. And so they would start asking more and more ambitious questions. And there was a, our, our first, our first uh, real engagement with, uh, which really led to success was with the state of the state insurance regulatory authority, CIRA, where we asked questions around the, the, the level of stress of the compulsory third-party insurance scheme. The original issue was how could we help reform? We then started to get to some existential issues. Every 10 years, approximately, there's a, there's a major reform of compulsory third-party insurance, and there was a reform planned. So we settled on, well, after pushing and pushing and pushing, we settled on the, the question of, is compulsory third-party insurance in its current form sustainable? That was the highest level question. And the proof of concept was, can we identify signs of stress for the existing system? So we, we looked at the number of, a predicted number of, of fraudulent claims for non-severe injuries. So two cars, two families, they bump into each other. Everybody gets a psychiatric, psychiatric injury. Could we predict the levels of, of fraud of that sort? And we looked at the strength of connections between doctors, claimants, and lawyers. We didn't, we weren't looking at individuals, we're just looking at network analysis. And we also analyzed social media to see what people were saying about compulsory third party insurance. Because of course, there's no such thing as compulsory third party insurance premium being too expensive. There's just a relative perception of uh, the system and the cost effectiveness of what people thought about it. So we delivered all these proof of concepts back as a dashboard to the Sura folks, and they loved it. They absolutely loved it. Then they said, let's do it again. So we, we went through a journey of ultimately getting to the point where we said, let's imagine the future of compulsory third-party insurance, where not only is the system so smart that we can stop accidents happening in the first place, but also the system itself can identify opportunities for fraud in the system and nudge people away from it, of those opportunities for fraud. Broadly speaking, people commit fraud for three reasons or three types of fraud. There are those who think it's a victimless crime. There are those who people who've had had such a bad experience they think they deserve a better outcome. And there are those who are kind of planning to do it anyway. So being able to identify those opportunities and, and use behavioral nudges to nudge people away from those fraud situations was, was what we looked at. And we said, let's safely put that 10 years in the future and let's come back to proof of concepts that would allow us to start moving towards those situations but will improve today or improve tomorrow in anticipation of a next major transition or another transition after that that future state. So working with Sierra was was really a lot of fun. They went from okay, we have to work with you because you know, because we have to to really embracing that that ambition of asking powerful questions. And they have gone on their own journey, built their own analytical capability, and they are they are really rocking it in terms of state to its regulatory authorities. Like they really, really embrace the data journey and, and really try to understand the whole gamut of areas that they're responsible for through data analytics. And more and more I've seen revenue New South Wales, transport New South Wales, 
really accelerate on their analytics journey because they're asking really powerful questions and being really ambitious about the data sets with appropriate governance, with respect for privacy, but being really ambitious about the data sets and also building their own capability. It's been absolutely wonderful to watch. It's a great example of asking the big wicked question and then stepping it back into what's the question within the question and then stepping out how do we get there to achieve that big vision. And I love the damn it moment for data science and the wicked question because if if you've got a damn it moment, if only I knew, then you know you're onto something. The other thing that's really interesting to me as we work on lots of projects is often our intuitions are wrong. Can you share a bit about that, what you've seen through these projects and how data can actually challenge those intuitions? Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And it's one of the most significant challenges is trying to prove that that commonly held beliefs or personal beliefs don't necessarily scale to the, the whole system. There are many, many, many examples of, of disproving different activities, but one easy one. We looked at the impact of infrastructure in regional New South Wales on jobs and skills. Commonly held belief that if you build a piece of infrastructure, and it, it might be a productivity enhancing piece of infrastructure like a bridge or a road, that there should be some long-term community impact in terms of, of either increased wealth or increased skill set. And you, you might reasonably believe that if it's, a, if it's a hospital, for example, that if you build a hospital in one location, not only will you have the economic Keynesian style from capital construction, but you'll also now have more skilled people and they will stay and they will they will operate the hospital and do such things. So we had a look at Hunter Valley ex Newcastle, so excluding Newcastle, we had a look at Hunter Valley as a, an area where different infrastructure uh, had been built over time. And there was a very, very strongly held view from our, our client agency, I won't tell you who they are, but they they knew this to be true, that there's a long-term impact on jobs and skills, and they were basically just looking to, to demonstrate that. So we had a look, and we looked and looked and looked. We used all sorts of data sets. We used bank data. We used, well, of course, all the data sets that, that government had access to. We worked very closely with a, with a bank. They did their analysis on their data and shared insights with us, and we went backwards and forwards exploring insights. We looked at a whole lane, range of, of retail data, and we looked at employment, jobs, and, and all sorts of data sets, hundreds of data sets. And we found nothing to prove the hypothesis. Our client said, no, no, back you go. <laughs> and so we, we had another look yeah. we used. We, we dug harder. We dug harder and harder. And we went wider in terms of data sets and came back and said, there is nothing to demonstrate any long impact on jobs and skills in this region based on the infrastructure that's been deployed over the last, I think it was 10 years of the project. That was a very disappointing result for our client. And we we explained the sorts of data that might help us to have a, a different perspective on it, but it was actually going to be quite difficult to do that. So we, we left the project there and we, we still had a good working relationship with the client. They, they acknowledged and respected our honesty and our willingness to say there's nothing here and to have another look, even though uh, we were pretty convinced there was nothing there. So disproving hypotheses or disproving common sense is actually it's a dangerous activity for data science because very often people say you've got it wrong you haven't understood you haven't understood the context you don't understand our domain and there's a much much more serious example we looked at which was the out-of-home care reform 
an example of building a really powerful data set to answer a really powerful set of questions related to children identified at risk of significant harm. So the project we started on 2015, there was a review of out-of-home care in New South Wales, and the review said 22,000 children, a billion dollars a year outcomes are not good. So we were commissioned by the Premier of New South Wales at the time, uh, Mike Baird, and told to build a data set to help understand what happens to children in their families in out-of-home care. So this is an example of really trying to ask really powerful questions and coming back to actually pretty ambitious data sets. So we built life journeys for 44,000 children, so 22,000 at the time, but over 10 years, 44,000 children, individual life journeys, and connect them to 137,000 related persons as defined by family community services as was. And we started to analyze the data set linked across education, health, justice, and family community services. And we started to bump up against a few issues related to how the system actually works. And people who, who work in the system, who know how badly the system operates, who are really trying hard to do the right thing. And we produced a set of results that we were really proud of, but got a really strong response from, from the folks, that, in particular from Family Community Services, who said that, that that's not right. And it, there are a whole lot of, of, of particular examples which I won't go into. There was one area that we found where there is a family in crisis, there's a, there's a child at risk, a uh, caseworker will do something because it's better than nothing. And we showed the consequences of that doing something because it's better than nothing in the medium and long term and said, well, there are consequences. And depending on what that doing something is because it's better than nothing, whether it's this decision or that decision, there can be very, very different outcomes. And we were delighted to find this result because we thought, wow, we've really demonstrated that data is useful, data is valuable, and that we're a valuable partner. We presented these results being very proud of ourselves. And the people we worked with were horrified, absolutely horrified. And part of the response we got was, you haven't understood. You haven't understood what this means. And what you're saying it is, is not what it really is. And... It, well, the, the response that we came back with was, it doesn't matter what you're saying it is or what we're saying it is, we found a phenomenon in the data. And the response was, no, it, 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 that isn't true. It can't be true. And in fact, we're not going to keep working with you. And this was, again, I'm, I'm trying not to be too specific because of the sensitivity of the subject, but we were really surprised. I was really surprised. Our data scientists were really surprised. We really, we, we genuinely believe we found something. And to this day, I believe we found something. But the result was rejected for misclassification reasons. That's not what it should be called. Therefore, it's wrong. It was also, I think, personally, I think it was rejected because it was a really, really uncomfortable result. And for people who are doing their absolute best and bringing their whole selves into that environment, trying to do something for the child and the family, and having lived experience, to be challenged to say that lived experience doesn't scale, has consequences, it was really, really challenging for the people we worked with. So that was a really bruising experience. And can of, I just can I sorry. just clarify? Do you mean that when you did this analysis work and, and when the when you were working with this data set, you saw that some actions that were taken by caseworkers did not necessarily lead to the best outcomes for families 
in the medium and long term. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. And and best is a tricky word to use in this situation. It led to adverse outcomes that were unanticipated because of that action. Mm. Now, interestingly, when we tried with that project to describe things in terms of outcomes, what do we actually want to achieve? It was a lot easier to talk about what we're trying to avoid, so avoiding adverse outcomes. Yes. And we found that some actions did lead to adverse outcomes. And as I said, that was a very difficult result for people to receive. And so the easier thing to do was say, data quality bad, don't have domain expertise, don't necessarily understand the context, therefore this result is not right. And it was, I was saying it was a very, very bruising experience because that that really, after these great successes with revenue and fire and rescue and, and transport, where, where people loved what we were doing, this was the exact opposite response. We were called irresponsible. I believe the word <laughs> MacGyver science was used at one stage. So those of you who are old enough to remember MacGyver, uh, fixing everything with a, yeah. a piece of string and a paperclip. And the fact that we were doing these, these really, generating these really powerful results on, on the smell of an oily rag, I think is where the MacGyver thing came from. But one of the responses was to, to address the criticisms around data quality and the scope of the problem. So we built a second bigger data asset. We, we were commissioned by the, the Premier again, by Premier Build Another Data Set. And this time it was 30 years. It was all data from, all relevant data from, from parts of government. And as I've mentioned, I basically have the view that all data sets are, are relevant. Addressing issues of data quality, addressing issues of those edge effects. So, and ultimately the data set contains, it's now called the human services data asset. It, there are millions of, of, of individuals represented in that data asset. It's across 30 years. It's across every part of government. And it's a really amazing data asset, which caused so many problems being created, partly again, because the responsible agency and this is part of the issue, the responsible agency wanted access to the data exclusively because they owned the problem. And anybody stepping in who didn't understand the context or the sensitivities or the concerns potentially created problems for them. Now, that, that data set is now, we're, we're building the, the process to access that data set on a much, much more broad scale in support of out-of-home care. But it shows the power of data, it shows the power of data analytics, but it also helped to identify all of the non-privacy related sensitivities that really stop progress from happening through data and analytics. So it's been a really, really powerful learning exercise. It's been a six year project to date, and it's something which still has amazing potential to help understand these, these genuinely wicked policy challenges, not just out of home care, but a whole range of other areas. But anyway, the, the, the original question you asked was around disproving hypotheses, but it, it, that's a thread that starts to unravel a whole lot of baked in beliefs and baked in sensitivities and the responses to an uncomfortable result and, and some of the, those sensitivities that, that really need to be addressed. Some of them justifiably, data quality, for example, some of them it's really about how the message is delivered and how you take people on that journey of acceptance that this this result might have validity. That's such an interesting tension, Ian, to draw where you're observing patterns and phenomena in the data that are uncomfortable. We are having a lot of conversations at the moment in the space of data sovereignty 
And there is, there's a notion that, you know, communities, for example, ought to be empowered to own and control, if you like, the narrative that's told about that community. Many want to present, for example, a strengths-based, take a strengths-based approach to the description of their community using data, capture data that, you know, that they can use then to tell their own stories. It's, it's interesting to, to note then that there seems to be something in that. And I think that you also would probably agree that domain knowledge, as you said, is actually a really important element to any data science project. I know that any data science project I've worked on, the first thing that you do is, is embed yourself really deeply in the task or the problem of the organization that you're working for and with to understand the problem as deeply and as richly as you possibly can before you apply in any, you know, actual data techniques, if you like. How do you see, I mean, quite clearly, I think in the case that you described with the human services data set, the insights that you're, that you're liberating from that work are so important for the people whose lives are impacted by those services. It's, it's inconceivable that those insights should be held back and, and, and disregarded for any reason at all. How then do you see the transition? Where is the, the barrier then between people with domain knowledge and with lived experience having control over the narrative that's told about them and their activities versus the need to acknowledge the phenomena that's that's appearing in the data where that phenomena has a real world impact on people's lives. I'm still trying to discover that answer for myself, but I think the most important thing to do is to help people with domain expertise on their own data journey. Now, when I first propose that we build this data asset to understand the journey of child family household and to be able to identify different cohorts in different circumstances to control for boy versus girl, control for under 12 versus over 12, regional versus remote. We started to look at the complexity of the data set and I said, this is what we should build. And that was the end of our ideation workshop. Someone literally laughed and said, you'll never be able to build that data asset. And it's, it's an infinitely complex problem. And it's not exactly the word they used, but uh, my response to that was, well, with, within underneath every infinitely complex problem, there's a finite complexity problem, which is useful to address. So we then built the data asset. And as I mentioned earlier, that we produced results that we were really, really proud of. And we presented those results. And even though we'd been working with the agencies, the, the, the reaction was, was really, really negative in terms of the result. And, and part of the reason was we didn't understand. Now, fast forward, this human services data asset has been created. The Data Analytics Center spent a huge amount of effort creating it and working with, of course, all different agencies. So the DAC had the lead of, of the build, but it, it required a lot of different input from different agencies. And it's now being hosted by the DAC, and we're busily building those access mechanisms for people to get access to it and to, to release results from it. So partly what we've done is created an environment for people to do their own analysis. And the Better Outcomes Lab is this access mechanism. That, that's the name of the Better Outcomes Lab. And there's a requirement for a data passport and, believe it or not, data visas to get access, to get into the environment and to get access to particular data sets. So that the passport says, you know what you're doing, uh, you've been qualified. The, the visa says you've got access to this data set. And of course, there are authorizing legal frameworks around access to the data set. And because we're not using passports and visas for anything else, we might as well use them for data. So that was a travel joke, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway. So, <laughs> 
what we're building is that that mechanism which allows domain experts, analytical experts, governance experts, and security experts to operate in the same environment where each person has their own focus area of responsibility. Uh, but there is there's a team that can work together to answer those really powerful questions. So it, it means then that someone from health or education or justice can access the data. They can bring the domain expertise. They can bring their understanding of the real world, but they can work alongside someone who is an analytical expert or someone who can tell them what uh, a, a gradient boost algorithm is or actually apply it for them. And in an environment where the data is appropriately governed, we have the right to receive it. We have the right to analyze it. We have the right to, to generate a result. We have a right to share that result and also in a, in a secure environment. So this Better Outcomes Lab is a really big step forward into uh, to enabling domain experts to actually do the analysis and provide a complementary set of skills and resources in order for them to do that. And the Better Outcomes Lab certainly is part of the solution to enable data-driven decision-making across all of New South Wales for policy and implementation, which is, of course, the vision of Minister Dominello. What about the opportunity for community people? As you know, we work with many not-for-profits and service providers on the ground and local businesses and local councils, etc. What about the opportunity for those actors and stakeholders accessing the Better Outcomes Lab and, you know, will, will we see data passports and visas for everyday citizens as well? So that's a really good question. At the moment, the, the access to the particular data set is controlled by a public interest direction issued by the New South Wales Privacy Commissioner in support of accessing the data set in support of um, out-of-home care reform. So it, it, there is an authorising legal instrument which allows access. And it's for named individuals who are, again, credentialed and given these passports. Now, the intention is that access will be broadened to, to outside of New South Wales government, but again, in, in, in support of the out-of-home care reform. So it, it still will need to be tightly controlled and tightly managed and, and limited access. And then the question arises is, can we use the data asset for wider purposes apart from out-of-home care reform? Can we look at homelessness, can we look at uh, domestic and family violence more, more broadly? And the answer is the moment, no, we can't because of the authorizing legal framework. But there may be an opportunity to apply for a legal instrument such as the a public interest direction from the Privacy Commissioner to look at the data asset for other purposes. But the most important thing is we're demonstrating that these data assets are genuinely useful and those criticisms from the, the, the generation one of the data asset <clears throat> related to data quality related to, to edge effects so because of the finite nature of the data set uh, there are always issues around the edges of the data set they have been addressed to a great extent known data quality uh, known edge effects much broader richer data asset so demonstrating that value has been really quite important. And so now being able to, to broaden the use or access the data set for broader purposes is that is the next big important step in the journey. And I think it's also fair to say that that data set helped to inform or set the ambition for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So this, the, there's a data asset or series of data assets which have been created across state and commonwealth 
jurisdictions, so New South Wales, Commonwealth, Victoria, Commonwealth, to to look at the the experience of people in the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and it, it's again very rich longitudinal data sets which give insight into the experience of people who participate in the scheme. And the intention now is to scale that up to cover all of Australia. And so that means that a whole range of different really important issues can be addressed, closing the gap or uh, looking at the issues related to to, uh, mental health or veterans affairs. So there's a whole range of issues that can be looked at from these data assets, but the appropriateness of access and for what purposes remains the really big challenge. So it's really getting to that point of, Christy, you mentioned sovereignty. Consent is the, as a general term, the, the ability for people to get in there and access and understand and, and trace their own journey, I think is the, the really next big challenge that we have. And I think there's, whilst we, we've got a lot better at data quality authorizing framework, the appropriate use, the, the consensual use, consensual access of potentially millions of people in a data asset and the ability to control the narrative is really the wrong way to describe it, but the the ability to to tell the story with sensitivity and empathy and appropriateness, I think really are are the big issues we need to address next. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's such a great focus to take is the, the path of empathy and building trust. And I think a lot of your work more recently has had to do with that, particularly where that trust is built on expectations of and, you know, demonstrable protection for people in terms of their privacy. I think a lot of people would feel really uncomfortable about the idea that their records from various agencies and their interactions with those agencies have been linked together to form, you know, a master dossier for each a citizen of New South Wales, but obviously, you know, this is being done with um, considerable care and, and respect for that for that trust and for that access. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about the work that you're doing at the moment and that has been done around AI and ethics um, and privacy at the DAC and uh, how that relates to your work with smart cities and smart places. Last year in 2020, New South Wales released its AI strategy and along with the strategy came an AI ethics policy and also a, a user guide how to and that was a, a really big step forward for New South Wales. Different parts of, of New South Wales government obviously have been using AI solutions, both operational AI and non-operational AI. And the strategy and policy said, these are some principles you must build into any solution that you're developing, any, any system you're developing. And the definition of AI was taken to be a very, very broad definition. So it, it sweeps up essentially any uh, machine learning or or even algorithmic approach, which uh, uses data. So this year we've released the AI assurance framework, which tries to encapsulate the principles in the AI policy and map them, map that, that space between the principles and the actual bits. So that when you're sitting there with your data sets or your algorithm, it's not just, I think this is aligned with what the principles say, but actually give some real guidance as to things you need to consider to get along, to, to, to span that gap between principles and bits. Now, when I say we, we've developed, it's been endorsed by the New South Wales AI Committee, uh, which is a really impressive group of people who keep me on my toes and certainly offer that, that friendly criticism uh, about what we're doing. But over the course of this year, we've taken the, the nascent idea of the assurance framework. We've looked at 
existing projects in New South Wales government with transports, with Revenue New South Wales. The Revenue New South Wales is a great one. It's its vulnerability prediction tool. So if you're if they're constantly finding someone, then this tool puts up some alerts to say maybe this person is vulnerable and possibly we should be thinking differently about how we address this person as opposed to just constantly finding them. We also looked at eHealth's sepsis prediction tool. So you're in an emergency department. This algorithm constantly monitors your vital signs and your data sets inside the emergency department and will alert if it predicts uh, the propensity for sepsis, which is a really life-threatening problem, life-threatening condition. So we've been looking at all of these different projects from across the year, evolving our assurance framework. And we've recently circulated around to different parts of government. We got voluminous feedback. We circulated the, the next version, got more voluminous feedback, and started to converge on something which is simple enough to be usable, but sophisticated enough to be useful and trying to strike that balance between something that's really genuinely provides a framework for people to think about. There are aspects in, in the AI principles around fairness and transparency and understanding data bias and understanding algorithmic bias, about calibrating tools, about constantly monitoring performance. And it's, it is, I, I think, genuinely a step forward. Now, it needs to go to the a, a subcommittee of cabinet to be ultimately endorsed and assuming it is, we'll launch it next year and then phase it into New South Wales, where essentially everybody using AI systems will need to comply with this assurance framework. So in there are aspects around trustworthiness. And during the course of this year and last year, and in fact, even uh, 2019, as I think back, we've been running AI summits, privacy awareness uh, week events, a whole privacy enhancing technology events. All of those things are really about demonstrating trustworthiness. We have the technical capability, we have the authorizing framework, we have the governance in place. We know what to do when things go wrong and we'll be transparent about what happens when things go wrong. All of that is, is about demonstrating trustworthiness. Minister Dominello talks about privacy, ethics, security, transparency, and inclusiveness, which actually touches on the smart cities. Being applied to data sharing and use, one of those use cases is AI, but it, it applies in general to all data sharing and use. And that demonstration of trustworthiness is in anticipation of building and maintaining trust with the broader public about government using, uh, New South Wales government using data for different purposes. Smart cities is another example of using data. So last year, New South Wales also released its smart places strategy. In New South Wales, we say smart places because it's not just Sydney, Newcastle, Wollongong. And part of that smart places strategy was a customer charter. In New South Wales, we also talk about customers as opposed to citizens because the intention is to be a customer-oriented government. And that customer data charter is a statement of what we will and what we won't do with data, which is increasingly about communities. And smart places is ultimately informed by digital twins. It's informed by spatial, temporal, granular data sets. But being able to apply those same principles of privacy, ethics, security, transparency, and inclusiveness is really important to not only helping to better understand the city, place, the environment, the community, that situational awareness, 
to do that what-if scenario planning for future environments and also to do predictive things like predictive maintenance. Being able to make a place smart means using fine-grained spatial temporal data about communities, about businesses, about infrastructure, about a whole range of, of aspects of that environment. And being able to apply those same demonstrable principles of trustworthiness, but at a, at a level which is implementable, again, spanning that world between the principles and the bits, is really important to genuinely being able to put in place privacy frameworks, ethics frameworks, security frameworks, transparency frameworks, in anticipation of demonstrating trustworthiness. And also, again, what happens when things go wrong. We did something really, really unusual for a government earlier this year during Privacy Awareness Week. We got the head of Service New South Wales, uh, the New South Wales Chief Information uh, and Digital Officer, and the head of, of Customer Delivery and Transformation, so three Deputy Secretary-level folks, and the Secretary of, of Customer Service to talk about the data breaches from Service New South Wales. So Damon Rees got up there and, and said, yep, it happened. We know it happened. Uh, this, this is the consequences of it. Greg Wells got up and said, this is what we're doing around our constantly evolving cybersecurity capability. William Murphy got up and then talked about the New South Wales data strategy, which was released this year in 2021 after the AI strategy and after the smart places strategy. So being able to be transparent about what happens when things go wrong and all the things that have been put in place after that has actually informed ultimately the 2021 data strategy, which came after smart places, which came after AI, because data is actually the big game. Those other areas are actually not to trivialize them, use cases of, of data use, examples of data use. Data strategy is the big game. So we released the, the data strategy this year. It is supportive of smart places. It's supportive of AI. It's supportive of a whole range of different uses of data. And ultimately, that is helping, as we bring that to life, it, it's helping a couple of other really big challenges. Not only is it helping us move deliberately but cautiously forward with our use of data, and demonstrate those aspects of trustworthiness, it's actually starting to inform intergovernmental data sharing frameworks. It's starting to inform the international standardization of data usage. Just for your, your listeners out there, that's JTC1 SC32 Working Group 6. <laughs> it's starting to inform that international standardization, standardization of data usage. And it's helping everyone think about data differently. And we have struggled for so long to come up with appropriate models frameworks for data usage because context matters, because the role you play matters, because where you are in the data life cycle matters. There are so many different dimensions. We have for so long been confounded by all of the, the exceptions, the, the textual situations. We're now starting to get our, our arms around it for data and data usage. And that will help a great deal. And as I mentioned earlier, we then, I think, are ready to start to deal with those really big challenges of data sovereignty and those challenges of appropriate use and those challenges of, of appropriate consent as we deliberately and cautiously move forward. I think the pandemic yeah. and the multiple crises we've experienced in Australia, climate crises, is reflective globally as well. And there's, of course, the World Economic Forum has the Smart Cities Alliance, where the use of technology and adopting new technology and AI is very much on the agenda. We've started to see, of course, cities and places around the world build new regulations around what they will and won't do in this arena, which I 
I think you're alluding to. And some of the things that I've been watching and observing is the legislation around the implementation, for example, of facial recognition systems and other surveillance-oriented data usage. To what degree is this on the agenda in Australia? What do people really care about? Thank you, Christy. That's, that's a really, really big question. And what do people care about? People care about appropriate use of their data. They care about getting personalized services. They, they care a great deal if there is a perceived use of data to, for, for a hub towards an individual. So we all want, all of us want the, the positives, the personalization, the, the kinks pulled out of the system, the friction removed from the system. But we really, all of us get alarmed when we think that our data might be used against us in some way, shape or form, or our data might be treated carelessly, might be inadvertently released. It might get into the wrong hands. And surveillance is one of those, one of those use cases that generally people are concerned about. Now, we are all surveilled all the time. You cannot walk down any street in any urban environment without being recorded multiple times via cameras and or other people counting devices or people measuring devices. We all, every time we go online, people are capturing information about us. So to some extent, we are being surveilled knowingly and we don't care too much about it. Or it's hard to find a person who won't use the internet because they're concerned about surveillance. It's hard to find someone who will not walk down the street because they're worried about being videoed. But again, it matters if there's a harm that could be deliberately or inadvertently directed towards each and every one of us because we're being surveilled. So that gets to the point of things like facial recognition and the the immediate past Australian Human Rights Commissioner called out a strong statement about not using facial recognition for a whole range of purposes because we don't know how to deal with potential harms. Now, interestingly, I, uh, I ran an ex- a thought experiment with the good folks of the Australian Computer Society recently when we were testing out a, a generalized version of our AI assurance framework. And we used a whole lot of different example technology uses of AI. And, and one of them was a facial recognition for uh, a ticket barrier. And it was amazing. I thought relatively innocuous example. We also used a chatbot. We used a mobile phone detection camera as uh, we're detecting drivers using their mobile phones whilst driving as, as theoretical examples of, of real world solutions and trying to think through potential harms associated with them. And each and every one of them, the first time we ran through, people automatically ran to, it, it's, it's like we were dealing with explosives or, or rotating knives or something like that. The, the harms people identified were really off the scale. And when I questioned these, we ran it as, again, as an ideation process with, with team, teamwork and post notes and such things. When I asked people, why did you move so rapidly towards the potential harms? A chatbot is relatively innocuous, a facial recognition for a ticket barrier seems relatively innocuous. They were able to point out a whole series of secondary considerations about people, even if it's an opt-in system, people walking past might be captured in context, captured in, in recorded in time and in space and in relationship, which they may not want. And it may lead to inadvertent harm if that information is released but it's not considered to be sensitive or it's not considered to be uh, not needed to be treated with care. And it was a really interesting uh, perspective that if if you are using technology without thinking through all of those secondary considerations or those harms which might arrive through repeated use of that 
facial recognition on that piece of AI, then you're really not considering the full gamut of potential harms that could arise associated with the use of the solution. So we, we ran the exercise again. We put some different conditions on it and we got a very, very different response because we had considered these secondary harms. We built some safeguards into it. It was not like we were now talking about um, rotating knives and had a ticket booth. It was now much, much different. Even the chatbot came back in a, in a very, very uh, different level of concern. The, the, the sexist, racist chatbots that we've seen evolve because there are no guidance around how to use it was where people went the first time. The second time it was, it was much, much more considered set of concerns because we built considerations around it, mitigating frameworks around it. So coming back to your original question, People are genuinely concerned about potential harm associated with use of their own data against them. As we've been developing our AI assurance framework and contemplating actual uses of facial recognition, which are actually in, in employed at the moment, what we have been doing is considering a whole range of mitigating strategies to deal with those not necessarily well-considered harms because the harms that people have considered are those obvious ones, the ones right in front of you. But thinking about secondary harms, thinking about harms associated with repeated application of technologies and ensuring that any AI solution, any AI system which gets deployed in New South Wales will pilot first. And then depending on the harms which have been, potential harms which have been identified, reviewed with some real rigor before any scaling happens. And that has been very well received by people who who are building AI-based systems to replace really outdated current approaches, but who are really concerned about making things potentially worse because they're applying AI to, to a system. So interesting. The, the question of just because we can, you know, should we? seems to sort of be ringing around the edges of, of that story. And it's always an interesting question when I think about it, to think about those secondary harms and try to explore for them. And of course, it's really only a failure of imagination if you can't think of any uh, first guess. And this, of course, is why you want to have, you know, lots of different people in the room from a lot of different backgrounds to contribute their, their thoughts and experiences when coming up with that, uh, you know, coming up with those exercises. You know, I'm wondering about some of those frameworks that you're talking about. I happen to have read a little bit about um, some of the ways in which facial recognition technology very specifically goes wrong. And again, failure of imagination if you can't think of you know, how it would uh, deliver real harm in any particular circumstance, but that they, these technologies, the literature would suggest, are particularly vulnerable to high error rates, higher error rates for females and for the very young and for the very old. These are just a few of the, the patterns that I sort of pulled out of the, of the review that I did. And I wonder about whether or not those frameworks that you're describing are truly effective. I think that there are plenty of people, technologists, for example, and futurists and, and you know, coders who are really excited about the idea of applying these technologies in these new ways to solve these wicked problems and might have a bias towards doing that, doing something rather than doing nothing. What are your thoughts on the if, the efficaciousness, the effectiveness, I don't know if I'm getting the word right there, of, um, of the frameworks that do exist? Are they sufficient? Where are they, you know, potentially still vulnerable? Where to from there? I have to say the questions on, on this, uh, this interview have been real corkers, so thank you very <laughs> much. 
<laughs> it's probably because we care a lot about this issue. And we don't get every, yeah. it's not every day you get to have the chief data scientist of New South Wales on. And thank you so much again, Ian, for coming on. It's just absolutely a privilege to speak with you. <laughs> right. All right. Well, Adam, I'll, I'll do my to answer your question. So I'll start by saying I don't think any technology is perfect. And we, we have deployed technologies for, well, since civilization began, we've been deploying technologies which are imperfect and discovering the consequences of the use of them over time. And some of those consequences are, are positive, some of those consequences are, are negative. We would possibly never have imagined the sort of traffic jams we experienced, at least pre-COVID, uh, when the automobile was invented or developed or some of the, the impacts on the environment of, of cars. So having said that, it matters a great deal what those consequences are. And sometimes we won't see those consequences for a long time. Sometimes we'll see those consequences relatively early on. So the, the implication is that if the application of a technology has potential benefit, then it's very likely that we're going to see uptake. So being able to use facial recognition to log into a laptop, for example, is it's... I, it's 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 a value add, but it's not perfect. But the consequences of not being able to be facially recognised by my laptop are that I use the keyboard or use some other biometric to get in. So if that was the only way to access the laptop, that could really be quite significantly harmful. If it didn't recognise me, I'm locked out of my system. That could be really problematic, and that can have all sorts of consequences associated with it. So it matters a great deal whether or not. AI, facial recognition, biometrics are a single point of failure or whether or not they're a convenience. It matters a great deal the consequences of the system not working and it matters a great deal the consequences of the system not working for some people but working for for others. So you you create that, that divide. And I think that's true of all technologies. It's interesting, the use of AI and facial recognition is getting a lot of scrutiny and that's got a really interesting consequence. The consequence is that when we're looking at application of AI, we look at the intended outcomes and we look at the the different aspects of the AI part and the data part. And quite often we have people who are uncomfortable about a particular approach being taken. So we say, all right, let, let's, let's remove the algorithmic bit from it and let's see if we're still uncomfortable, whether we still have a problem with this approach. And if we then remove the data part from it, see whether or not we're still uncomfortable or still have concerns about the approach. If we remove the AI and the data part, it's not about the use of AI. It's actually what we're doing that we're uncomfortable with. And that's an interesting way of decomposing a whole series of, of bigger issues and shining the light on the policy or the approach or the way we're addressing a problem, which got the scrutiny because we were applying AI or data but in practice, it's neither of those things which are really the underlying concern. Now, we need to make sure the data is in, in good shape. We need to make sure we understand data quality. We need to make sure we understand the bias aspect. But it's actually caused us to have stop and think about what we're doing and the way we have historically, traditionally done that thing and to try and speak to that as a concern as opposed to the fact that we're using AI for it. So that, I think that's been an interesting consequence of some of the things we've looked at. And when we're building the AI assurance framework, we've had a few situations where where projects have been presented to the committee and people have have been really uncomfortable with the approach that's being taken. And 
And part of our job is to ensure that we're developing an assurance framework for the AI, as opposed to education's use of AI or health's use of AI. We're not assuring health. We're not assuring education. We're trying to assure the use of AI and data for that particular application within health and education. So it's been a, it's been a really interesting exercise, which has had the consequence of helping us rethink what we're doing, what we're trying to achieve, as opposed to how we're trying to achieve it. And it leads me to the next question, Ian, because it is evolving and it's evolving very quickly, rapidly. And as you know very well, because you've recently joined our board and thank you for your support in our work, we are very committed to supporting local actors and stakeholders, local communities engage in data for decision-making that will give local people more control and citizens more control over the implementations of policies and programs that are right for them, ultimately to get better outcomes for people and to ensure thriving communities. The Prime Minister was recently talking about the release of the Australian Data Strategy uh, that's due for release in the next couple of weeks. Can you tell us, in your view, why is Australia's first data strategy important for Australian citizens and what do you expect it will do for us as a community? So the Australian data strategy tries to address one of the really big issues around people's un- people's people not sharing data. So it's unwilling, unable, not allowed are the broad reasons. The unwilling has certainly changed over the course. So at least while I've been with New South Wales government, people really see the value of data and COVID amplified that understanding very, very significantly. Data really matters when you need to understand what's going on in the world around you. So the unwilling has largely changed because of cultural reasons. There are still pockets of unwilling, but it it has changed a great deal over the, the last five or six years. The unable speaks to real technical challenges, framework challenges, issues associated with data quality, issues associated with getting data out of systems. The not allowed part is a really, really significant barrier. When I joined the Data Analytics Center, people would say, I can't give you this data because of the privacy, actually, the BOTPA reason. If it was de-identified data about people, the concerns that people felt about releasing the data were actually all articulated as because of the privacy, I, I can't give it to you. And of course, there are a whole lot of other sensitivities around data sharing, which we, we spoke about earlier. So the Australian data strategy helps people understand within, principally within the Commonwealth, that they are allowed and the data availability transparency bill supports that. And it says, this is how you do it. This is, this is what it means to share data. These are the, these are the ways of doing it. And during the course of New South Wales data strategy, evolution so it was released earlier this year we've been trying to bring it to life through different frameworks we've we new south wales have addressed the issues around data which is very sensitive and very personal and the government's need around that data which is less sensitive but still personal and the government's need around that data which sensitive and not personal and the government's need around that and then data which should be either the sensitive or personal sort of stuff we put out as open data so the, the australian data strategy speaks to some of those sorts of frameworks around enabling uh, data sharing within, within principally within the Commonwealth. It will also start to help with support of the data, data availability and transparency bill, start to 
help with data sharing between state and commonwealth. And earlier this year, the intergovernmental agreement on data sharing was signed to allow that data sharing. And we're working on some, some big problem spaces, including the National Disability Insurance Scheme reform. And we're working on some big reforms about systems and frameworks and tools. So all of that is about getting data moving, empowering people to move data, helping people understand what appropriate movement of data is. In anticipation of addressing some of those big complex challenges. So there is a, a group called the Digital Data Ministers Meeting, which New South Wales Minister Dominillo uh, sits on. And that group is looking at doing some big data projects, including the National Disability Insurance Data Scheme, data set creation, including building multi-jurisdictional natural hazards apps, so bushfires near me, scaled up to address storms and, and various other natural hazards, working across state and commonwealth boundaries, working principally across state boundaries, but also sharing data with the commonwealth. All of those things address issues which issues of friction, issues of the rail gauge challenge, that when you cross a state boundary, historically, fire disappears when it crosses a state boundary. I mean, that's just incredible. I mean, it didn't disappear. It just dropped out of the data set. There have been cases of, of child protection where uh, a family, a, a vulnerable family, at-risk family, crossed into another state. New state has no record or understanding of that family. And there was an example in South Australia some years ago where the child died soon after the family moved from New South Wales because um, South Australia had no record of that family, no reason to be concerned. So, I mean, that's a, a very, very serious and sensitive and difficult example of, of, a, of a rail gauge problem because there is different ways of looking at that problem from across state boundaries and also no sharing of data sets across that, uh, that state boundary. The, the example of a fire, it is, it's just ridiculous. So, so the, the, the ministers have been working on that. Or that group has been working on that data sharing, those frameworks, those big problems to try and stop that sort of strange behaviors happening and to enable better service delivery for, for everybody in Australia. And we're looking at mutual recognition of things like licenses across state boundaries. We're looking at better joined up Commonwealth state services by being able to share these data sets, National Disability Insurance Scheme being one. But there are so many different points of intersection between the Commonwealth and states, which, which require data from, from both jurisdictions in order, to, uh, in order to deliver that effective service. So it should mean that in future, we have a more seamless experience wherever we are in Australia, we have a more personalised experience meeting our needs wherever we are in Australia. It should mean that frustration and aggro associated with government services should go down considerably. Not that I'm saying there is, but just hypothetically, if there was. <laughs> and it, it, it should mean that our data is being increasingly used appropriately, irrespective of how it's being used, again, in anticipation of, of better outcomes for each and every one of us. That is so exciting. What's great, I think, about that is it sounds like that they are an alignment of incentives that are possible and that are elucidated in that vision. The data strategy is painting there, you know, where states and territories are able to do what they do better by having access and visibility in the data across state boundaries that really can only help to result in better outcomes for everybody. Dr. Ian Offerman, thank you so much for joining us on The Foil. It's been a privilege, as I said, to have you on with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everybody who's listening, for joining us. And we hope to hear from you again in the very near future. Thanks very much for having me. 
Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.